Hi, I'm Lona Maseka from South Africa, a celebrity TV chef and member of the Chef's Manifesto. In 2015, world leaders agreed to 17 sustainable development goals, goals that have the power to create a better world by 2030, by ending poverty, fighting inequality, and addressing the urgency of climate change. Good food is a foundation for everything, providing the energy needed to fight for this better future for everyone, everywhere. Without good food, no other progress is possible. Good food begins with farmers, it's nutritious and saves lives. It powers people and economies. Good food is also vulnerable to disruption and not always a choice. Good food makes progress possible and is about love, love of flavor, health and celebration, love of people and the planet, love of your neighbor and 7 billion others we do not personally know. Good food makes progress possible. To find out more, follow at goodfoodforall underscore SDG2 on Instagram. Share with us what good food means to you and what you're doing to contribute to good food for all. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, season two. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a long-standing Chef's Manifesto member, columnist, restaurateur and author of Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. In this four-part season, we explore how COVID-19 has affected people all over the world, mainly through the prism of food, talking to chefs and experts about different areas of the food system. In today's episode, we take a look at food production the disruptions in food supply chains, the loss of incomes faced by different actors within the food system and food security. So let's turn to today's guests. After our first interview, I'll be speaking with Chef Merlin LeBron Johnson, who was the youngest chef in the UK to ever be awarded a Michelin star. We then talk with TV presenter, author and activist Bella Gill, who joins us from Brazil about agroecology as a response to help reduce the risk of future pandemics. But first up, we have Christina Bauman from southern Italy on the line. After becoming inspired by the world cuisine in San Francisco and realising what an important place women have in professional kitchens, Chef Christina moved to Austin, Texas to train at Le Cordon Bleu and become a chef. She then worked at several restaurants, including the prestigious Driscoll Grill, but the lure of home drew Bauman back to Italy, where she opened Glass Osteria in Rome. Her innovative take on regional Italian food still takes inspiration from the world at large, creating magnificent and imaginative award-winning menus. In our conversation today, we talk about how it's been for Chef Christina in Italy, having to close and reopen her restaurant, and how she has tried her best to keep her staff and producers as part of her food family. Chef Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. I know 
what a brilliant member you are. So firstly, I'd just really like to hear your story about how the pandemic has affected your life in restaurant. Well, that will be a long story, so I'm going to make it short. Okay, thank you. It just changed my life. Yes. Personally, because I've been uh, in the house, um, you know, I, I do not even remember the last time that I spent so much time in my house, um, which is the first thing. And professionally, mm-hmm. because I have been dealing with uh, so many situations that are like I have never experienced before. I know that the world was going to change, but honestly, I didn't think it was going to change that much. Um, dealing with uh, closures, with dealing with uh, closures, we, um, I'm talking about with, with the people that I've been working with for such a long time, with the closing of the restaurant, and uh, also trying to predict exactly what would happen once we reopened, and then dealing with what happened once we reopened. So mm-hmm. really, honestly, uh, like a jump in uh, the dark. I don't even know how to start and where to start. But, um, you know, with the knowledge that I acquired for, you know, for so many years in the business, I'm trying to do my best. And honestly, up to now, um, uh, all the provision, you know, all the forecasts that I made um, happen to be true, at least partially. What sort of forecasts are they? Well, I am working right now. I just made a, uh, like a sort of uh, assessment of the situation. I've been working at about 42, 43% as opposed to the last month before closing because I didn't even dare make any comparison with last year. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, I'm working about that percentage. I reduced all my costs uh, accordingly. But there's a human factor that nobody could uh, really foresee. That is, all the people that I have been working with for such a long time have not received, uh, you know, the the, the, the the salary from the government. They are on furlough. And um, now that poses me an ethical question. That is, how am I going to help the people that have been working with me? They are part of my family for such a long time. So that is like a, a huge, you know, question that I ask myself every day and I'm trying to deal with it. Yeah, it sounds like you're dealing with it as well as you can, of course. I mean, I've, I've, t- I've been going through um, similar things with my restaurant and um, we've had to deal with, yeah, similar questions around our staff and We've fortunately in the UK, like I understand in Italy, have a furlough scheme, unlike in other countries like India and so on. But it it doesn't make it any easier, does it, when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to the crunch? Yeah, and India is actually a a very specific region of the world that has been having a lot of problems because I have several friends. I, I, you know, I've been dealing, I have several uh, occasions to go to India, so I have a lot of friends, and they are telling me that the situation is really grave. So, unfortunately, yeah, yeah, it's it's sad. I mean, fortunately, through this podcast, we're able to learn from each other all over the world. I was speaking to Radhika Kandawal, um, and she on on just the other day for this podcast, and yeah, she was 
giving us further insight. It's, I'm hoping that this podcast will really help us all um, be able to to cope ongoing because it's obviously this is a long game. It's not it's not going away anytime yeah. soon, is it? Correct. And I think that honestly, exchanging ideas and experiences can uh, help everybody out. I talk a lot to my friends in the United States and, um, you know, with people in India, in uh, Asia in general. And um, so we know exactly what will happen next time. I have a business with China, same thing, because I know exactly, you know, what, what will happen next, next time, you know, in the next future. So I think that exchanging ideas and experiences uh, um, can do a great deal of good. Yeah. Um, so I've got a couple of questions I'd love to ask you. Um, as a chef's manifesto chef, I know how much you must care about your produce, uh, ensuring it's grown with respect for the earth yes. while supporting the food producers. Have you been able to continue working with and supporting your food producers and suppliers during the pandemic and lockdown? How have you coped? This is a very, very um, good question, just because I can guarantee you that in Italy it's not mm -hmm. the same. Even though I've been trying to deal with my same vendors and I try to help them out or guaranteeing them you know, orders in order to help them out to carry on with their uh, production, honestly, it is very difficult because they are uh, not supported, uh, not only from the government, but in general, even from a logistical point of view. Like the deliveries, they are mm -hmm. not the same. Right now, almost all uh, vendors, they are trying to charge restaurant business in general, but also markets or the GDO for that matter, to, uh, you know, for delivery expenses. And that makes it even harder for people. They are trying to help small businesses to carry on uh, with the same, you know, identical business plan that they had earlier. So, for instance, I have, I have had uh, uh, one of my vendors, one of my producers, he's a small farmer in the north of Italy. And um, he had to basically miss almost one month of delivery because he didn't know how to do it. He didn't have the same um, delivery service. He didn't even know how to manage. So he just set himself up just last week, but he basically missed like months. And for a small vendor, that means death. That means basically he's gonna be in uh, such a, uh, an economical difficulty that it's gonna take years to dig himself out of the out out of the hole, it's uh, just insane. Indeed, I and I wish him all the best. I've been dealing with him for like years and years. Nobody even knew this guy, and honestly, I am so. He's one of those guys that talks to his plants. He doesn't go in on vacation because he's afraid that nobody's going to actually water his uh, his uh, his plants. So um, I'm like, I'm doing my best to support him. And what's he growing? He grows basically all kinds of like uh, uh, small tubers and uh, uh, small salads. He's in Trentino, about 20 minutes from Ortice. Imagine that I love him so much that I have a piece of wood that he actually gave me, uh, I don't even know, like maybe six years ago. 
I have it in my restaurant on the wall because he is a, a pure, pure farmer. I don't even know how to explain this, but he is like the genuine um, personality uh, that believes that uh, earth and vegetables and uh, whatever he grows is actually the result of his work. And he tends to deliver that to anybody who deserve it. So I love him. I'm sure his food tastes better for it as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, that, and then yours, of course, through having such wonderful produce. Absolutely. His sunchokes, his small tubers, they are like his little carrots are to die for. Wow. So before we finish, um, I'd just love to know if you have any practical advice about how chefs can help build back better after this crisis. Well, the thing that I'm trying to do is to enlarge basically my uh, clientele. Uh, the only way out uh, of this crisis, the way that I see it, is to manage basically a larger clientele. So even though I've been a great supporter of Italians in general, and that's the, way, that's the reason for which I've been surviving fairly well, because trust me, I talk to my colleagues and they do like zero to clients every day. I have never done zero since I reopened. And the reason is because I really cared about Italians in general. So they've been very supportive of my, um, of my business, but I try to enlarge and diversify my business. So, um, you know, starting from lesson online all the way to consulting jobs outside of Italy, um, that's the way that I've been supporting my restaurant and my, uh, my employees. Also, I have been very proud to be part of um, some of the international companies that have been more interested in saving the restaurant business in Italy than probably any company in Italy. So... And that is the, you know, I've been sitting for years with outside uh, companies. And um, I think that the way that we can get out of this is to make the entire world a whole family that is all in the same uh, whole. So we need to just dig ourselves out, uh, talking and dealing with everybody. Like uh, there's no basically frontiers anymore. There's no boundaries. Christina, that is a beautiful message to finish our conversation on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, great work on Chef Manifesto. It has been one of the most incredible, uh, not experience, but one of the greatest uh, concepts that have been put out there in the last few years, I swear. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. British chef Merlin LeBron Johnson opened his first London restaurant, Portland, in 2015 at age 24. Nine months later, he became the youngest British Michelin star chef. Since Portland, chef Merlin opened Clipstone in 2016 and from 2017 led the fourth floor restaurant at The Conduit. Most recently, Merlin has opened a small farm to table restaurant in rural Somerset called Ossip. Chef Merlin has always devoted time to charitable projects. He cooks for the homeless at Refettorio Felix, a community kitchen started by Massimo Batura, where chefs volunteer to cook meals for those in need, using surplus ingredients delivered from around the city. It's a great pleasure to have him on today. 
Chef Merlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I understand you're in the process of reopening your restaurant right this kind of very week. Yeah, well, we opened um, on the 30th of July, so we've, we've been going for a couple of weeks, and um, it still feels very much like we're opening for the first time. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, the kind of, you? I mean, you, I understand you only opened your restaurant in December. Do you mind telling us about the kind of whole journey and your experience through the pandemic as a restaurant owner and chef? Yeah, so um, opening in, we opened in December and we were three months in and very much still kind of figuring things out, finding our feet. Um, it was still very intense and we put so much into the opening that, you know, to have to suddenly stop. Um, when we were just really taking, you know, we were starting to get be fully booked all the time and I was, I was super happy with the food and we were moving into spring as well. So the menu was really changing. And then suddenly we just had to stop. And I had actually, I closed the restaurant a couple of days before they announced, before the forced, before the forced closure, because um, actually a couple of my staff got ill and yeah, just a combination of things. But I was speaking to friends who've got restaurants in London who were, who were just telling me like, you need to like, just do whatever you can to shut the place down because cut your losses as quickly as you can so at that and there was even i want at that point no one knew whether this was going to be like a six-month thing a year-long thing a three-month thing so it was a bit of a shock but um yeah yeah super challenging i imagine were you able to continue supporting your farmers and producers during that time yeah so for the first month i didn't really do anything i was just kind of cleaning up um, making sure that all my staff were okay and all the bills had been paid and just coming to terms with the, the sort of the new the, the new normal or abnormal um, and then and what actually what I did was I, I spent a, a month building uh, or working on a plot of land that had been given to me that I uh, had wanted to use to grow produce for the restaurant but just hadn't found the time and to be honest I wouldn't have found the time this year either so that's what I did for the first month maybe even two months and then it was apparent to me that there was there was one particular grower who only grows things for me he's just outside the 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 village and um he we'd planned a whole year of planting together got the seeds we talked about what exactly what I wanted him to grow and obviously he'd grown all this stuff and then there was no restaurant to, to sell it to and he couldn't sell it anywhere else because he doesn't supply other restaurants and even if he did they would be closed too so i wanted to do something to support him and i mean it's okay because in march and april very little grows anyway um but moving into june and july you know when he start his first crops were arriving we decided to set up like um a basket scheme so we um we, we built an e-commerce website and we were selling baskets a bit like hampers that 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 sold like a mixture of things that he'd grown things that our other producers have been producing like certain dairy um cheese stuff like that and then also cider local ciders and then we were also make to make it extra fun we were making things and putting them in the baskets like cookies and cakes and things like rice pudding and elderflower cordial and so it was like a weekly hamper that that, that that we were selling to local people to support local producers um 
and that, that that went really well actually and then off the back of that we just we actually just ex- extended it to being an online e-commerce shop so you didn't have to buy the hamper you could just buy individual items like local cheese local dairy um and then off the back of that we built a pop-up shop and then it kind of turned into a bakery and yeah so we 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 did manage to support a lot of people and it was it was really good and we were going to take it we were going to take it nationwide and it just all got a bit too much to be honest it was it was a lot of work and then the next step actually we launched Ossip at home which was basically the, our restaurant almost restaurant style food that was produced in a takeaway format so people had to cook some stuff at home so but by the time we started doing Ossip at home we were already growing so much of our own produce that we just built the menus around stuff that we'd grown ourselves um which was really cool yeah wow what a dream it sounds like you've been really busy yeah for a month we weren't busy apart from doing the gardens and then I suddenly found myself more busy than I'd ever been in my life because we were trying to do so many different things. And also when you're like, for me, cooking in a restaurant is what I've done for the last 12 years. So that comes naturally. But when you're navigating like logistics, delivery, e-commerce, Shopify, new websites, it's all, it's also unknown and sort of, un, I don't know. It's, it's quite stressful. Yeah. 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 I mean, and as, a locavore and kind of truly seasonal chef. It'd be interesting to know if you have any advice on how we can support farmers and food producers going forward in a meaningful way as restaurants and as we reopen. What's what's the best thing we can do? Well, I mean, the way the way I see it, and this is this is the way I cook, so it's you know it's easy for me to say, and I, I realise that it probably now comes more naturally to me than maybe everyone else is we, 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 we've got ourselves into a, a sort of system in restaurants where we are basically allowed to order. We, we can order whatever we want to cook. We can just make a phone call and get it delivered the next day. I mean, working in London, you can call a supplier like Mash or Natura at midnight and say, I want this and it will be with you before you've even arrived at the restaurant in the morning. And that, because of that, the way that you cook is, is very kind of like you can cook whatever you want and, um, in many ways it's great but what you're not doing is is working directly with the producer and letting him lead you on what you cook so or or her um or or them like that you the way i like to cook is that I, i'm it's a constant dialogue with the growers and the producers and they're telling me either either they're growing for me or if they're not growing for me they're just growing what they grow they're saying okay next week we're going to have this ready next week we're going to have this ready you know, in a month's time, we're going to have celeriac, kohlrabi, and you are literally building your menu based on this information. And that's, that's the, the best way to support the growers because otherwise they're constantly growing crops and they never know whether you're actually going to buy them or not. And I've had that firsthand experience with farmers. They, you know, they've grown stuff for us and then I've decided, you know, back when I was in London and sort of decided to get excited about doing something else and then they just, you know, there's a whole load of crops that they're not selling to me and then somebody else doesn't want it. And the only way to support producers is to write your menus based on what they are producing and to have that that dialogue and that and that relationship um and it has to be fluid and, and and what i have found is that you end up having to be a lot more creative because you know there's only a few months of the year which like which is like now when there's so much variety of, of exciting and interesting and beautiful things but most of the year in the uk we're working with calvin and nero and swiss chard and beetroots and kale and 
as much as I love those things, it can get a bit boring. It can be challenging to to constantly be create sort of inspiring and unusual dishes of those things. But I think by being forced to think outside of the box, you 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 end up doing something a bit more exciting and a bit different. So it's it's a good thing. Absolutely. And so, kind of now you're reopening. I guess, and you you've had a time a bit of time to reflect kind of as you closed and kind of went through that whole process of setting up your hampers and other projects. Um, has COVID-19 changed your approach to food or food systems in any way? Like, do you think slightly differently now than you, than you did pre pandemic? Um, I don't, I don't know. I think that, you know, definitely for the last two years, the last two projects I opened was the philosophy was to build menus around it to work with like one or two or three producers that were as local as possible and to buy directly from them cutting out any sort of middlemen um, so that you ensure that they get a fair price the food travels sort of minimum distance and you're constantly cooking with you know the freshest ingredients as well because you can you can manage that when you're not going through wholesalers or middlemen you're buying directly from the source and there's a lot less sort of mileage or transition or storage that that happens to the food and i think that 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 so not much has changed for me in that respect what what we've been able to do at the restaurant which is really cool which we we didn't we kind of did this before but didn't is we've removed menus entirely so people pay in advance to eat at my restaurant now um so they buy the seat you know uh or essentially they pay for their menu but the, the thing is they don't get a menu so they're basically paying to come to Ossip and be cooked for by me and my team and because we don't have a menu it's allowed us this flexibility to basically cook whatever the hell we want um and that allows us to work well obviously it's great because we grow our own produce so we can just we can just make it up on the day but also with with the producers we work with to be super super flexible um and change things as much or as little as we want sometimes in an evening guests will come to our restaurant and you know they might all eat completely different things. We're just cooking. It, it sounds a bit disorganized. It's a lot more organized than that. And the dishes gen- genuinely have been sort of developed and tested. And that's something that I was super anxious about before because it's such a revolutionary thing to do in the UK is to say, look, we're just going to cook for you. Just tell us what you don't like. Um, funnily enough, in, in, in France, rural France, or if you were in rural Italy, you would just go to a restaurant and you'd just, they, you know, they would just cook for you and you'd be happy about it because you trust them. I think... In the UK, we've got a slightly different approach. You know, if you're parting with a lot of money, quite often you don't like there to be too much element of risk. You know, like you might not like something, but people love it. And I think that that, you know, that could be that could there could be a there could be something in it. You know, other restaurants saying, look, we're just going to cook with the freshest, most local, most sustainable produce that we've bought from you know great suppliers or that we've grown ourselves and. And maybe people should change their approach to eating out in that way so they're less fussy and then there'll be less demand for things that aren't sustainable or locally grown. And I think that's a brilliant idea. And it's, I mean, it, everything you're talking about really just as, I mean, you're obviously you're a long-standing member of the Chef's Manifesto, but you're just hitting each and every one of our action points. And it sounds like you're almost kind of asking your customers to support you in the same way that you're supporting your producers really there's a kind of synergy in that philosophy and it sounds yeah it sounds like you're doing really well well for it i'm pleased yeah it's nice it's i think that when we when we 
when I opened the restaurant, it was in a previously uncharted territory for me, Somerset. I mean, I, I worked in, in, in Devon when, when I was younger and I worked in London and elsewhere in the world, but I, I had no idea what, what the kind of, what the vibe or what the scene was here. So I went in with quite a, you know, we did a set menu in the evening and there was no choice. It was fixed, but there was an actual physical menu given. And then we did a la carte at lunchtime and I, and, you know, I thought, I thought I'd play it safe, basically. Uh, I didn't want to do anything too too crazy. And um, that was fine. You know, it worked really well. People loved it. But when we closed, I thought, you know what? Like, there was moments when I thought the restaurant might never reopen. I thought, if I'm going to reopen this place, I'm going to do it exactly the way that I think it should be. And, I, and, and having to remove a third of our tables, I kind of thought, well, you know what? Maybe the 70% of our guests would have been happy for me to do whatever the hell I wanted. Um, and maybe that, that will be the 20 covers that we're going to serve tonight. And then, you know, there's always going to be a percentage of people that wouldn't have been happy about the changes that we've made, but they really just won't come and there wouldn't have been space for them anyway. So, so I just did what I wanted and hopes that people would like it. And I thought if they don't like it, then I'll just close. Um, we are, we've been fully booked. We're fully booked every day. So it's, it's we're much more booked up than we ever were before. So okay. a combination of us doing something really interesting is making people talk about us more because we don't have a big kind of Instagram following or we haven't got any national reviews really. So it's just word of mouth. People saying locally, oh, have you been to this restaurant? They're doing some interesting stuff. And uh, a combination of that. And I think people are just so desperate now to eat, to have an experience or to eat in a nice restaurant because they've been under house arrest for so long. Thanks so much for joining us today, Merlin. Um, really interesting to hear how you're getting on and dealing with this whole, yeah, debacle. Um, thanks again. Thank you. Brazilian chef Bella Gill is a long-standing Chef's Manifesto member, TV presenter, author, and activist. She is currently completing a master's degree at the University of Slow Food in Italy and has also studied Ayurvedic nutrition, permaculture, macrobiotics, among other holistic practices. As ambassador for the UN Food and Agricultural Organization and as speaker for IFAD, Chef Bella is pushing food transformation in Brazil and around the world by supporting diverse social projects every day and especially through her organization. Bella Infancia, that teaches children in Brazilian schools how to eat better. In today's conversation, we talk about the power of social media for good and Chef Bella's initiative to link organic farmers with consumers. We also discuss the importance of agroecology or farming in harmony with nature, in particular as a natural response to help reduce the risk of future pandemics. All the way from Brazil, a warm welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast, Chef Bella Gill. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure's all ours. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'm going to crack straight on. You have a huge following on social media, on both Instagram and YouTube. For all its woes, social media can be a very positive and supportive community. What have your experiences been on social media in response to COVID-19 during this time? And can social media be a real and positive tool for transforming our food system? Oh, yeah, for sure. I So when the pandemic first hit Brazil and the social distancing and quarantine took place, 
Um, we understood that the farmers and producers would be at greater risk of losing clients and their crops because um, here in Brazil, many of them were very dependent on selling foods to schools, for example. So I decided to use my social media to connect producers with um, customers and, and clients. And I did that along with other institutions uh, like IDEC that works in defense of um, consumers and um, the Institute Organic Brazil in which I am the vice president. So we created a map where farmers and consumers could match <laughs> kind of uh, um, in this way and they could find each other all over Brazil. And it was a very nice and effective work, but also um, on top of that, I use uh, my YouTube to provide, you know, uh, reflections on um, healthy issues and how cooking at home could help because a lot of people were like, they didn't even know how to, um, you know, use their oven and, and now they had to. So um, tips on, on like how to cook at home was very important. And also um, like the basic rules of, I, I uh, did some campaigns of uh, telling people to stay at home and, and use the mask. And I know that this, maybe in the UK, it's a very, very basic rule, but in Brazil, it's not like that because um, not everybody can stay at home because they had to work during the day to earn money to buy dinner at night because the government didn't help promptly. So, and secondly, because many people just follow our president who personally break all the health protocols. So it was a mess. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, like a difficult situation. Like we've all had, I mean, the UK um, as well. Uh, has had its certainly had its troubles and I think it's really important like you said to mention that social distancing is a privilege really and not everyone is able to do it mm -hmm. but it's great to hear how really how much of a focus you apply to sustainability values especially as a as a celebrity chef with such a following I mean you know, you're like uh, Jamie Oliver or Nigella Lawson, but really with a core focus of on climate change, sustainability and all of these practices. And I just I'm in awe of of you in that respect. It's really amazing that you're that you're creating such change. Um, so the next question is, um, so you have a background in permaculture. Is that right? Yeah. And um, you're clearly passionate about ingredients that have been grown with respect for the earth and its oceans, which is also one of the eight thematic areas of the Chef's Manifesto. Please, can you explain to our listeners in a nutshell what permaculture is and how we can farm more in harmony with nature, given that COVID-19 is a symptom of our disregard for her? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, oh, thank you for the words. <laughs> first and um, I believe that the COVID-19 is um, also a, a nature response to what we've been doing to Mother Earth along like many years of degradation and pollution and so on. Um, so when it comes to farming I see agroecology as the answer for producing food respecting nature um, and uh, because agroecology is a system 
where farmers mainly use um, animal, uh, animal fertilizers or legumes and cover crops to provide nutrients to the soil and implement biological pest control by mixing and converging um, the plantations, also leading to um, agricultural security and varied income. Uh, Kind of the opposite of what happens in huge monocultures, such as soy and and corn, especially because they are mostly uh, GMO here in Brazil. And yeah, I'm talking about Brazil. And um, so uh, in, in order to uh, change, you know, the, the, our situation and, and um, kind of work in preventing other pandemics and, and so on, I believe that we, we have to change our agricultural system. Yeah. Because I was talking about monoculture, and in order to to for monocultures to grow, for example, most of the time, at least here in Brazil, farmers have to invade native forests and lands, um, displacing wild animals that um, can become more in contact with humans. And we know that most of the recent virus pandemics that we had came from wild animals. And also, I believe that it's very, very, very important to put an end into uh, industrial animal farming the way it is today, because like they're all confined, they get uh, many, many uh, diseases. They are very prone to um, infectious diseases, such as like viral and bacterial, that uh, they can therefore spread into humans. So in order to um, kind of prevent uh, the situation that we are living right now, I believe that we have to look at the way we produce food, especially animal, um, uh, for for human consumption. And it's a pity that the media doesn't talk about that that much. Um, but yeah, I use my voice to kind of uh, talk uh, talk a little bit about it because I believe it's very very important. And and as you said. I, I I actually don't know how I have um, many people uh, following my work, and because also I kind of uh, uh, poke a little bit the you know the system, and and but it's it's nice, it's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean they're all values that you're that really fit within the chef's manifesto. Uh, you know in really it's about protecting biodiversity and as you were saying animal welfare as well through minimizing industrial animal agriculture yeah so, so that we can yeah ho- hopefully prevent uh, similar occurrence again in the future in terms of another pandemic but our uh, next question really is um people care is a key part of permaculture philosophy too yes shifting now more towards investment in livelihoods in what ways can we amplify the voices of the marginalized and vulnerable in brazil and even the world going forward and what role can chefs play here well uh, i believe that uh, today we are very connected because of the internet and i i believe that maybe the most effective way is just to talk about the, this uh the problems that we are facing and to give voice to these people you know here in brazil uh, many many 
um, celebrities with millions of followers, for example, they give the Instagram account to, to more vulnerable people or people that didn't have, you know, the opportunity to talk to millions of people. So especially black people because of the um, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, um, like campaign, uh, the, the world campaign. And, and it's very, very effective. So I believe that what people can do, it's really talk about these, these issues. And the Internet is here for us to, to do that as well. And but uh, in regards to chefs, more specifically, I believe that we can uh, try our best to work in, in synchrony with what we believe. You know, um, I, I think that's very, very important to be coherent uh, in your words and in your actions. So if you have a restaurant, for example, try buying uh, from sources who share your values, for example. Try to um, give uh, support and and give value to the producers who um, produce your food, you know, that you serve, and create a menu based on on this. And uh, in a more political way, I believe it's very important for um, uh, to advocate for government to incentivize uh, the transition to sustainable agriculture for example, through policies and, and programs and so on. So there are many, many things we can do, but I believe the internet is there. And, and also, if you're a chef, you can use your place, your restaurant, your menu to, to really um, use food as a tool for transformation. Wow. What a, what a great set of actionable points to finish our interview on. Bella, I could talk to you for hours. Um, it's fascinating hearing your thoughts on all of this. But um, thank you so much for joining us on the on the podcast. It was a, a pleasure. <laughs> I hope we can interview you again. I'm sure we will. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. And that's all for episode two. I've been your host, EcoChef Tom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk about sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. See you next week when we talk with award-winning Harlem-based chef Joseph J.J. Johnson. Colombian chef Natalia Restrepo and Professor Karina Hawkes, director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University of London, about inequalities made visible by the pandemic and the effect they are having on food producers, restaurant staff and other vulnerable communities, and how we as chefs can all be a power for good during these transformative times. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. The celebration of local and seasonal food. 
a focus on plant-based ingredients, education on food safety and healthy diets, nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all, chefs, politicians, suppliers, farmers, educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>